I have a model as an entrepreneur uh, that I created in the context of this crisis, which is innovate, don't hibernate. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Krasovsky, and welcome to episode 53 of That Remote Show, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Boyd Cohen, the founder of IOMob and the author of Emergence of the Urban Entrepreneur. Boyd obtained his PhD in strategy and entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado in 2001. And since then, he has balanced academic and entrepreneurial pursuits in both the Americas and Europe. After moving to Barcelona in 2015, Boyd left academia behind and co-founded IOMOB, a mobility-as-a-service solution offered to major public and private transportation and travel industry organizations. Essentially, IOMOB enables cities and large transport companies to create solutions connecting buses, trains, cars, bikes, scooters, and other mobility options together. Travelers can find any service, see how it will take them to their destination, compare and combine options, and pay in any participating app. This was extremely interesting to me since as a frequent traveler, I have tons of different mobility apps on my phone from Uber and Lyft to Bird, Lime, more than plenty airline apps and all of that doesn't even factor in the mobility apps for specific countries where Uber, for example, may not be available but a local alternative is. I had a lot of fun talking with Boyd and we discussed a ton of interesting topics like why he decided to start IOMOB, smart cities, urban mobility and what he thinks the future of all this looks like. As always, you can find all the resources mentioned at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 53. That's episode all spelled out followed by the number 53. All right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this wide ranging conversation with Boyd Cohen. All right, well, Boyd, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. Um, like we talked about before we hit record, you are an expert on mobility and specifically urban mobility. Um, and you're the CEO and founder of a company called IOMOB. And I'm really excited to talk to you because a lot of the people who listen to the show, myself included, are location independent. We frequent a lot of different cities all over the world very often. And you know, we kind of have to like learn these cities constantly and, and, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of like how do we get around in those cities? And that's something you're an expert on. And so, um, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us about this. Yeah, it should be a fun, uh, nice range of conversation around topics from my book from a couple of years ago, The Emergence of the Urban Entrepreneur, where I talked a lot about what you guys do and your listeners do all the time. And I've interacted with quite a few in the scope of my life and my work and my company and then of course my company and myself i'm I'm talking to you from barcelona and here i am we're quarantined i've been quarantined for three weeks now and uh so our company we're about 10 people and we're all fully remote right now but it was like a forced remote situation so for now Mm -hmm. we're kind of like your your listeners except 
uh, we were forced into it. And the other thing is kind of different is I think a lot of your, you know, the sort of purpose built remote companies uh, are more than open and, and likely have employees from all over the world working around the world. And in our case, for the moment, we have people from around the world. We have staff from Uruguay, Latvia, U.S., Spain, Portugal, but they're all based in in Barcelona. So it's it's weird for us because we're we're used to working in the office every day, and uh, now we're all working remotely. So uh, we we uh, understand even more what uh, what your listeners live every day. Yeah. So uh, to kind of you know get started, we're both uh, you know quarantined in, in different parts of the world. Give me a little bit of like what's going on in Barcelona right now, right? We're all hearing a lot of like scary news coming out of Spain. I mean, at first it was a lot of scary stuff coming out of Italy. Um, obviously the situation there is, is, is very tragic and sad, but what is going on in Spain right now? What does Barcelona look like at the moment? Just what is the feel in the city? It's one of my favorite cities in the world. So uh, I can't wait to get back to it someday. Um, but yeah, w- what is Barcelona like right now? I'm with you. I'm a I'm a nomad when it comes to cities, and I love Barcelona, and that's why I'm living here now. I'm from the states originally, but um, yeah, it's it's a ghost town for the most part. Um, for the last few weeks, we've been under mandatory quarantine. They find people anywhere from 600 euros to several thousand for violating wow. the rules of the quarantine, and they have uh, police everywhere. Um, you can't even be in a car with two people. Uh, they stop you. And unless you have a very good reason to have a second person in your car, you get fined for that too. Um, so you really can't do anything except for essential services. So it's pretty much a ghost town. The one lucky thing I have is we have a dog. And it's one of the exceptions is that you're allowed to walk your dog. So mm-hmm. I'm an outdoors guy. I have mountains near my house. I ride my mountain bike every weekend and I can't ride my mountain bike. That's against the law right now too. But I can walk my dog, so at least I get out uh, every day for that. Yeah, I wonder if uh, a whole bunch of people are now getting dogs. You know, <laughs> for <laughs> the sure, has been overrun. <laughs> so my my intention is to actually start a new business, just rent my dog, and I'm gonna just <laughs> gonna auction. I'm gonna auction her by the hour, yeah. just so people can get out of the house. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and so how is the how are you getting food? Is that part of the essentials that you can like leave the house, go to the grocery store, or is there like a delivery service? What's the situation with that? Yeah, both are viable. Um, there was a run on food, like you guys have experienced in the states too, and toilet paper and that stuff. But um, now on a daily basis, most of the food is sort of freshly stocked. You are allowed to go to the grocery store, and the difference between your lifestyle in in a, in European city compared to most U.S. cities is you don't need a car for anything. So, we have uh, literally it's about a three minute walk from my house. We have a very nice grocery store we can walk to. So you can't go there with anyone else. So you have to go by yourself. And they have implemented rules around social distance, so you can't get too close to other people that are other customers, but you can go um, whenever you need to to the grocery store. So that is an exception that's allowed. And again, because uh, the cities are so much denser here, you never have to go far to get to essential services anyway. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we hear about a lot of these industries that are kind of having an amazing, you know, 
business moment right now. You know, video game manufacturers, um, you know, like Zoom, exactly. Uh, Zoom has become, you know, Zoom was a company I knew for like a long time and I use very regularly. Now all of a sudden I hear it on the news and like all yeah. stuff like, you know, but I think the one that people are missing, I think, is like bidet manufacturers uh, because now that toilet paper is like, you yeah. know, worth gold uh my parents installed a bidet in the house which i was like <laughs> you know great great problem solving but back you know. to the future yeah crazy that's one. right that's right yeah. uh so yeah you said that your company is now you know you've been forced into a remote situation before we yeah. dive into kind of what your company does uh what has been your experience with having to be forced to you know go from working in person to now working remotely you know, it's we had a lot of discussions when we started our company. So I have a PhD in business and my co-founders have PhDs in computer science. So we had this discussion. We're a software company. So, you know, we're the type of company that should easily be able to be built around a remote model. And uh, my CTO, in fact, is, is a blockchain engineer. So, you know, super into the whole idea around distributed solutions, distributed technology, which makes even more sense. And when we first started the company, that was our vision to be a remote company. And we started with one uh, junior developer for, in another country. can't remember where they were, and it didn't work for us. India. India. Now, in India, they went through uh, – they had this monsoons, and they had all these problems, and this computer got wiped out by the water. I mean, it was a crazy story, but we had time zone issues and everything. And I'm like, you know what? It was a great vision. It was a great idea, but it's not working for us right now. And what we came to conclude at that time – and it's funny because I asked my CTO a week ago, now that we've been in quarantine for a few weeks, if he's changed his thinking, but – the conclusion we came to as a company at that time when this happened was remote can work, but it's hard with junior people who uh, maybe are fresh out of school, even if they're really talented, because they kind of need to be a sponge and learn around the culture, around the vision, the the, the commitment to quality, um, to get aligned with a team. It's hard for them to do when they're remote. And the other thing that we came to conclude is when you're in the very early days of a startup, you know, building that culture and even knowing what the heck it is you're trying to build and for who and what the value for you evolve a lot early on. And the more interaction you have at that stage, the better. So the conclusion we came to at that time is remote could work for us later, but it would be two things would be required. One is we have to be more stable in exactly what our roadmap is, what we're building, why, for who. And secondly, maybe not do so much remote hiring of junior people, at least in the beginning, or maybe if they were junior, we would bring them in for a month to work with us and our team locally before they go back home or something. So when I asked uh, my CTO literally last week, I said, Hey, I'm curious, you know, what do you think about remote now that we're having to do it? He said, you know, it's doable. It's still not my preference. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, like exactly like we talked about before we hit record, a lot of people are now being forced into working remotely. And even my dad was like, I think this is going to be huge for your audience because, you know, now everybody's going to fall in love with remote work. But I'm hearing from a lot of people that they are not liking working remotely. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we're quarantined. 
We're stuck inside. You know, like I, when I work remotely, I like to go to coffee shops. I like to go to co-working spaces. Um, I don't like to actually stay at home and work uh, that often. And so this is really tough for me as well at the moment in terms of like, you know, just being stuck inside all the time. Um, I, I would agree. I would say this is a very bad advertisement for remote work for you in the sense that people are being forced into a model remote that is very inflexible, doesn't allow you that individuality, doesn't allow you to interact with anybody basically uh, on purpose. And on top of it, uh, you may not have this problem, but many people, myself included do, is when you have children, young children at home, that's not remote work on a normal basis because usually they're at school if you have children. And, and then you have a lot more flexibility to, you know, you could go out to lunch during the day. You can do various things, which you can't do now. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, they're going to inter interject in your middle of important meetings and it's hard to focus. And so, yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think this is the best test. Although, you know, I think, my gut feeling is you are going to see a very different view of remote work as a society, as a global society mm -hmm. after this. And what I, I, obviously I've, I've been very focused in the past and today on sustainability and reducing car dependence and uh, problems in cities around congestion and contamination and climate change and various other things. And telework has always been a big um, tool to mm -hmm reduce our impact on that and also improve quality of life for people who actually have long commutes or would like to be able to work from home. So my my long-winded point there is I actually think that despite the flaws of the current environment around remote work, I think a lot of people are getting turned on to it as well. I think companies are starting to realize it is possible to have employees be productive at home. I'm talking to a lot of people and I would say this is definitely true for me. I'm having more meetings and generally I'm more productive in these weeks than I have been in a normal office environment because all of our clients, investors and others are also stuck at home because you have no commute time between meetings. You can literally stack mm -hmm. your meetings from 9 to 10, 10, 05, 10, 10 to 11, 11 to 12. You don't have to have any gaps because you're not having to travel inside the city to go to other meetings and stuff. So I don't know. I think people are going to, I think, you know, you're right. Some people are going to have a negative view about some of the negative things that are being imposed on them right now. But most people who are thoughtful people recognize that some of the problems they're experiencing with the remote right now are, are wouldn't exist in a normal environment. Yeah, and I think in a normal environment, um, you would be prepared and you yeah. would think through the process, right? And so this is what I always talk to when I talk to other companies who are either considering going remote or, you know, I, I always tell them, it's like, you're going to have to change the way that you manage your team. You're not going to run the company the same way. You're not going to have the same kind of um, micromanagement in a remote work setting is extremely destructive. Uh, it's yeah. much, it's much more easy to like, you feel it a lot easier. Um, and so I think that a lot of these companies that are now being forced to go remote are doing so unprepared and they have no idea how to handle it. And that's adding to that aspect of like, 
I, I hate this, you know, like, you know, and, and company owners are also like, we hate this. Like, we don't know what's going on. Like our employees working or not. Like there's a lot of this and like for, just forcing somebody is, is never, is never a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, but on top of another point that I was, I think is going to happen that you're right about is um, I think business travel is going to take a hit. You know, now these companies are being forced to do meetings internationally and are realizing they can get it done without actually getting somebody on a plane. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's going to be uh, a big side effect from uh, this this whole thing is now they've been running, you know, these meetings uh, for a long time and they're going to realize they're not going to have to, you know, uh, send somebody on a plane. I agree. But, I think there's a climate benefit there. And there's also, mm-hmm. I think, you know, not just normal meetings. I've missed out on tons of conferences, but some of the conferences are pivoting and innovating and going online and actually they're able to reach a much larger audience now they have to rethink their business model because Mm -hmm. a conference built around monetizing renting space for exhibition now has to be rethought around sponsors and how do you how do you make money off of a virtual conference only but i was talking to an investor the other day who said his daughter is hosting a conference that had a thousand people signed up for a physical conference and she had a pivot to virtual. And they, they now have 4,000 people attending. So mm-hmm. you can reach a much larger global audience with, with your message and with your content too. So yeah, it's going to require some rethinking. But I do think we're going to see some more permanent changes in, in uh, how our economy works and how we see new innovation and new products, new services, and new ways of engaging commerce and people together in remote ways. So yeah, interesting times. Yeah, it's actually funny. I have a I have a client who uh, just concluded a virtual summit literally like two weeks before all of this broke, and it's the first time somebody has done that in his industry. And now he's got all of these people reaching out to him saying, "I will pay you to set up what we were going to have as a physical, you know, uh, like um, a physical event in a virtual setting, the same way that he did." He's like, "I don't know if this should be another business. <laughs> like, I'm not Maybe. sure." Um, but you know, uh, moving over to kind of what you do and what your company does, uh, I know that you said that you have a PhD in business, but can you give listeners a little bit of a background, uh, of yourself and, and, you know, what you do and how you ended up now into this new field that that your company IOMOB is currently in? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I grew up in the States. I went to undergrad near your home at Miami of Ohio and and then a master's in South Carolina. And then I got my PhD at University of Colorado. My PhD was in entrepreneurship. And then I was teaching entrepreneurship at different universities. And like three years after I started teaching, I was like, what the hell am I doing? I don't even know. I don't even know what it means to be an entrepreneur. I studied, I got a PhD in it. That's like, you, you learn book smarts about like business models and valuations and, um, I don't know, like, you know, stuff you'd read in textbooks, but even more theoretical. And I'm like, I don't know anything about what it means to be an entrepreneur. And I'm teaching students how to be an entrepreneur. So I said, you know what, I got to start my own businesses. So I know what the heck I'm talking about. And uh, I got the entrepreneurial bug. And then uh, this is my sixth company now, uh, three in the smart city software arena. So I've been in the sustainability space for a long time. I think you heard about me because uh, I've written three books and one of them was called The Emergence of the Urban Entrepreneur. It came out, I think, in 2016. And that book was very much focused on digital nomads, on 
the changing face of entrepreneurship around how people are increasingly wanting to be more in an urban setting, more in co-working settings, uh, less so in the Silicon Valley-esque kind of industrial uh, suburban sprawl spaces where there's no culture and it's super expensive and you have to be in a car for everything. So that was a lot of sort of what I was looking at, sort of the evolution of how entrepreneurship is going urban and how people are also increasingly interested in solving urban problems. And that was in part because of my own passion around smart cities and sustainable cities. And that's kind of how I got into my current uh, company, which is, which, as you said, is called IAMOB. And what we're trying to do, as you said earlier, is solve the fragmentation in the mobility market. So if you think about it, you mentioned it, it's crazy for travelers, but even in your own city, less so in the U.S., in Europe, it's insane. Like in in uh, Barcelona, we have 21 companies who were given the right, the licensing to offer a shared motorcycle uh, service in the city. We have dozens of kick scooter sharing services like Bird and Lime and all that, they all have their own apps. Then you have public transit apps, you have rail apps, you have taxi apps, you have ride hailing apps like Uber and Lyft. But everywhere you go around the world, there are different services because not every service is everywhere and ubiquitous. In fact, it's so funny when Americans arrive to Barcelona because we ask them, how do you plan to get around as a tourist for the next few days? Oh, I'm just going to use my my Uber app. Well, guess what? Uber doesn't even <laughs> exist in Barcelona. So the what? It does. That's like their their go to thing. Like, what do I? How can I survive without it? Right. But but that's why we were born as I am of is to solve that problem by allowing people to seamlessly travel in cities around the world, accessing all the different public and private services that are there, combining them when it makes sense. So we use our own algorithms we designed in house, so that you can say, okay, I want to go from the Sagrada Familia to the Count Nowhere Barça place. I have no idea how to get there. I don't even know where it is in the city. All right, the app. You pull up an app and it gives you the best way to get there. Maybe the best way to get there is to take a scooter to a metro and then take the metro. We'll tell you how much it costs, calculate your journey for you in terms of time. You choose which one you want and you can book and pay for those services inside the IMR powered app, meaning you can even scan, unlock and lock the scooter like the one sitting behind me right here. The Cirque was integrated into our platform. You can do all that inside we do it as a B2B or B2G service. So we don't offer it as an app to end users directly. We offer it to rail companies, to public transit authorities, so they can offer this experience to their user base. So if you're offering this, because this is going to be my next question, was if you're offering this to b if, if you're doing it in a B2B way and you're yep. essentially having to go to clients like um, you know rail companies or bus companies or whatever, how do then all of those integrate together right because that's the thing is that like you know maybe i want to go from here to here in a scooter but then afterwards i have to take an uber and then you know i have to go to the trainer or whatever so how do all of those things integrate together if your clients are actually those companies that are still separate i think that's part of the magic of what we do at imob so every vehicle connected to imob our algorithms know about and when you say you want to go from a to b our algorithms say, okay, here are the different options you could go, and we combine them for you. And the other the other sweet spot for IMOB is the fact that we solve that headache for you by we go out and recruit the services, the scooter companies, the rail companies, the bus companies, the train authorities, and we do uh, integrations at the API level so that we have real-time knowledge of all the vehicles, and then we do deep integration so that they can be booked and paid for inside 
our clients' apps. So from a user perspective, you can seamlessly move around the city uh, with one app. And the other thing I think is really interesting for your audience, uh, for a digital nomad, let's say, let's say you're from Singapore and you travel a lot out of Singapore, but you don't live there very often. And you, you use Singapore Airlines a lot. We've talked to Singapore Airlines in the past. We don't have them as a client at the moment, but that's the type of client we would like. So let's say Singapore Airlines says, okay, I am up. We want to use your technology. If one of your listeners is from Singapore and they already have the Singapore Airlines app, the way we built our technology, we call it global mobility roaming. Any client of ours, any user of an app of any client of IMO, so say Singapore Airlines uses our technology, any user of Singapore Airlines app will be able to travel anywhere in the world that IMO has integrated services and access them with the same app they're used to using. So it's not like every time you go to a new city, you have to download a new app. You can use whatever app you're used to using, and you can access the whole global inventory of services that IMOB has integrated. As we grow, we integrate more and more services in different parts of the world. All those services are accessible to you in any app you have that's connected to our backend. So essentially, IOMOB does not have, you guys do not have your own app. You are able to build in your technology into anyone's app. So Correct. essentially, hypothetically, in the scenario that you laid out, somebody who has a Singapore Air app, for example, would be able to hail a cab in Barcelona. Exactly. Basically, it reduces all of these hundreds of apps that you have to have. Because I have a folder, you know, that <laughs> has, you know, like every scooter in like different countries and like, you know, exactly. different Ubers and like Lyft and whatever. So that's really exciting, you know, because I think a lot of people suffer from like app headaches, you know, like there's, oh, there's always another app you got to download and like learn and like, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like people don't want more apps. They want exactly. like, one app that handles everything. Um you mentioned deep integration, and I'm guessing that the opposite is shallow integration. So that would be deep integration would be, like you said, being able to pay for something. Is shallow integration then something that I love to use, which is like Rome to Rio, if you've ever heard of that, which gives you the options of what to do, but you still need to go out there and, and hunt them down. Is that yeah, correct? That's right. Okay. We call that light integration. and. Okay. Um, that would be that example of a service would be what we refer to in the industry as a journey planner. So it gives mm -hmm. you ideas about how to what journey options might make sense for you. But the minute you want to execute one, you have to leap out of the app and download the other one or and book and pay for it in the other one. We one of the things we decided when we first started the company is we needed to avoid that because, you know, everyone's tired. As you said, they're tired of having to download more apps and onboard the apps is a pain in the ass for everybody. And when you travel, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's not fun in your own city. Like I said, I mean, like Madrid, they have 20, 21 or 22 companies got licenses for kick scooters. 15 are currently operating. So there are 15 different apps for a kick scooter. Imagine you're in Madrid, even if you live there and you want to go somewhere and you think a scooter makes sense for you, but you don't see one around you. What are you going to do? Download and open 15 apps to find out where the near, I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. As somebody who like me, who I'm, I mean, right now I'm, I'm stationary, but most of the time I don't have a, a home. I go from Airbnb in one place to an Airbnb in another place. And this is something that this sort of distributed mobility lifestyle is something that we really appreciate. You know, we can go to, you know, Barcelona and get an Airbnb and we don't need to worry about, you know, how we're going to get around. Cause we can get, um, I can't, I can't forget what the ride share in, in Barcelona is called the, you know, you can figure, 
Cabify, that's right. I remember the yellow app. I know uh-huh. it, but um, so does, is this something that can also apply to housing? Because for example, you know, you mentioned something that, you know, if you don't have a scooter here next to you, you need to go on the other app to see if that company has a scooter. Something similar happens with the housing for us, for example, as well, where we go and we need to check Airbnbs and okay, there's no Airbnbs that we like in this price range. So let's go over to this other website and see if there is something like that. Is that something that can also apply to that? Is that something that you're looking into or or no? We're not looking into it, but you're talking about an aggregation play, which, you know, is basically what IAMOB does. So I think every it's like if you think about the airline industry, I mean, before most of your listeners were born, uh, we didn't have the kayaks and the trip advisors and all these different platforms that aggregate travel content. I mean, you used to have to go to different airline websites to find out where they flew. And if you needed two airlines to get from one point to the other, you had to book them separately on each air, airline site. I mean, it's ridiculous, but that's how life used to be. Well, obviously, no one would do that now, and it's it's crazy we ever had to do that. Well, we're still doing that in mobility, which is insane because mobility is more fragmented than airlines are. There's like 200 airlines in the world. There's thousands of mobility apps around the world, literally thousands. Okay, well, how many housing sites are there? There's thousands of them, too, because, sure, Airbnb is the big, the big brother in the room, but every geographic territory had Airbnb-like services before Airbnb existed, and many of them are still around, they're niche or whatever, uh, so somebody would need to come in and aggregate. We, you see the same thing in real estate, which is similar, right? Like um, we used to have, in the U.S., you used to have, you didn't have the MLS system or multiple listing service where you could go to one place and get access to everything for sale, and you had to go to different real estate websites to find out what they were selling uh, there wasn't a central repository, and then we got over that problem. So I don't think the I don't think the rental market has resolved that yet, to my knowledge. And you would also need Airbnb, which is the big brother in the room, to endorse or support it. That's one of the problems. Like in our case, Uber doesn't tend to like to play nice with other aggregators like IAMOB because they want to be the walled garden. They want to own their users. So it's their business model. It's their strategy. So they don't really want to play nice with others. And I suspect Airbnb wouldn't want to either. They don't really want to be equally compared to and available in somebody else's app. Um, And they're so big, they don't have to basically, Mm -hmm. which is, I think Uber's argument as well. So um, there's going to be resistance to not having Airbnb, uh, to having Airbnb in that. But you, I could envision a model that's everything but Airbnb. In fact, in the uh, ride-hailing industry, that is the Uber industry, uh, there was an initiative that was roughly called the Anti-Uber Alliance. So these were all these like um, second-level players who were right behind Uber in every market, or sometimes they were first in their market, but they're obviously not first in the global market. And they said, how do we compete with Uber, who's got billions of dollars and loses billions every quarter? Uh, we're never going to get that big. So they try to figure out how they could like align forces in a way where a user could access one app and access all of those different ride-hailing services when they travel around the world. So I can envision an aggregation of all the second level ones that are not named Airbnb. And then if Airbnb doesn't have what you want, you could go to one source and find out what else is available Mm -hmm. at least. So is that kind of how IMOB functions right now is that you are sort of like 
like you said, you know, you're probably not going to be able to like play with Uber or Lyft or, um, you know, so, kind of like these bigger ones. And so are you kind of going after like the smaller players and organizing those together? Now, it's a good question. and It's logical. I would say we're not only doing that. We have some of the biggest players. So um, actually, we have access to Lyft. Um, mm-hmm. We have some big taxi services. Uh, we've just secured a deal with the largest uh, scooter operator in Europe. So it depends a lot on the business model of the big players and how open they are. So some some of the Silicon Valley, in a way, it's almost as simple as saying it this way. The Silicon Valley-backed unicorns in mobility, whether they're kick scooter mobility or ride-hailing mobility or whatever, they tend not to want to play with others and be in an aggregated experience in an open marketplace. They want to own a walled garden. We find that most other companies, even big ones, if they're not Silicon Valley backed uh, or if they're not focused and born in Silicon Valley, especially mm-hmm. the European versions, even if they're really big, they're way more open to being part of an open ecosystem. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense with the way that VC funding works and what their goals are. That that makes sense to me in terms of like their um, their actions. But you mentioned the term smart city. Uh, This is something that Mm -hmm. ties two things that I really enjoy together, you know, urban cities and and the the concept of uh, things becoming smart, quote unquote. What is a smart city and what does that look like when it's played out fully? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of debate. There has been since the term came out around 2008, exactly what it is. For me, a smart city is is broader concept than what a lot of people want to say. A lot of people believe it's all about the use of ICT technologies. Uh, for making cities more efficient. So it's about Internet of Things. It's about uh, public Wi-Fi. Um, it's about, um, obviously, uh, smarter energy systems. But I, I actually think it's bigger than that. I think a smart city is an innovative city. It's a city that embraces innovation, reinvention, is citizen-centric, leverages technology for the better good of society but doesn't lead with technology because it's cool they're like trying to solve human problems and if technology will help great but not all things that i consider smart uh in a smart city necessarily require technology i'll give like a a, an example for me there's a topic called procurement for innovation procurement for innovation is the idea that instead of using procurement like cities normally do which is incredibly bureaucratic makes it only accessible to billion-dollar companies because you have to meet all these hurdles and you have to have a team of five people writing the proposal and all this crap. Procurement for Innovation says, forget that. We're not going to predetermine what our requirement, what what our criteria is for what we need. We're going to say what our aspirations are, and then we're going to let people come up with innovative solutions without detailing all the requirements. And one example I give that's like just really obvious when you think about it. So like in a traditional procurement world, a city, let's say a city aspires to increase the use of electric vehicles. All right. In the traditional procurement world, the the transport team gets together and they say, how can we do this? And they say, we have a million dollars to spend. How many electric vehicles can we buy? and charging stations for our municipal fleet for city staff to drive around in electric cars 
and that will get exposure to electric cars to the population. Hopefully that'll grow. Okay, that's one model. And if they did that model, they'd say, okay, we're going to do a, a procurement for 15 electric cars, five charging stations. The cars are going to have to meet this criteria. We need eight that are multi-utility for whatever. We need three that are this, and we expect this kind of performance. Okay, so they're like detailing everything they need, and basically no one can win except for three companies, right? I'm, the procurement for innovation model says, okay, we have a million dollars to spend to accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles. Why not just say that? We've got a million. Here's an open innovation platform. We're open to proposals. So then you're going to get that proposal the city thinks about. So Ford is going to submit a proposal. You might get somebody who says, well, what about um, – what about doing an incentive program where citizens get discounts on uh, the purchase of a car and the charging for free for one year? And they budget on how many how many citizens could get discounts. Yeah. And another proposal comes in and says, well, what if we do an electric car sharing service? If you look at the data, an average car in a car sharing fleet exposes 12 people to it. So 12 drivers per every vehicle. Um, how many cars can we buy in, in stations could we implement and how many users could we affect? All right. So those are three different proposals the city got because they embrace procurement for innovation. And if it were me, I would choose a third one, most likely, because if, if your real goal is to accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles, the best way to do it is to get as many citizens exposure to it at the least cost required. And some of them who do it in the electric fleet might say, oh, this is cool. I want to have my own. So. My thinking is my, my argument is that's an to me that's an example of being a smart city even though it's just changing your procurement process it's not really mm -hmm. technology it's almost like a like a hackathon model yeah. you know the way that like startups run hackathons it's like hey here's this problem that we have go be creative and come up um, with an idea what are some cities right now like maybe two or three cities that you feel like are doing a good job at being a smart city. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting conversation because, uh, especially to your global audience, um, it it varies a lot around the world. Um, what I mean by that is there are different takes to what a smart city is and how to deploy one or how to move towards one. I always like to say being a smart city is a journey. It's not a destination in the sense that, like, mm -hmm. it's not like, oh, we did 10 things, so now we're a smart city. So, hey, we're a smart city. Because by, t like, three years from now, you're a dumb city compared to what other people are doing. So <laughs> you have to keep evolving. So, and that's my why I say it's about being innovative. It's not that you innovate three times and you're done. It's like in embedding innovation in your ethos, including of your public administration and how you engage with citizens. I did a post in Fast Company, I think it was in 2015, that got a lot of attention because I was looking at the evolution of smart cities and because uh, I'd been in the space for a long time. And I had come to the conclusion that we've seen at least three stages of, of smart cities. And it's a long answer to your question, but because to answer your question, I need to give this context in my opinion. So sure. 1.0 smart city was a tech push smart city. So that was how we started. That was like IBM and Cisco saying, hey, we've got some technology. We could sell to cities. Uh, we're going to convince some early adopters to try our technologies, smart lighting systems or whatever, right? And that was 1.0. So it was tech push from the big companies. 2.0 was uh, city-led technology-enabled. So that was, okay, cities saying, you know what, smart cities, there's something in this. 
But we can't just let the private sector tell us what we need and just do it. We need to take ownership of this, of our city and lead and build a, a strategy and a vision for that. And then we need to deploy the smart technology that meets the needs we have after doing a gap analysis of where our weaknesses are. We're bad in public Wi-Fi, so let's invest in that. So it was a strategic approach to smart cities from the city perspective. And 3.0 is citizen-led co-creation. So in that model, it's more what we just talked about. It's the hackathons. It's the engaging citizens. So the reason I give you that background is that in general, for example, Asian cities have been very strong at 2.0. They tend to be more autocratic governments. They're less democratic in their nature in a lot of cases. Uh, You know, Singapore is a world-class example of a 2.0 smart city. So amazing strategy, very smart people, zero corruption, um, excellent deployment of technology innovation. Uh, tends to be more tech-centric in their approach than human-centric in a lot of ways. You talk about 3.0, which is a citizen-centric model. I think you look at places like Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Medellin in Colombia. Those are cities. Barcelona has been very strong in the 3.0 model. It actually started as 2.0 and it evolved to 3.0. In my vision of the world, a true smart city probably has to marry 2.0 and 3.0 because we might be biased. I am, probably you are, a lot of your listeners. Well, 3.0, that's the only answer. But you know what I've discovered is that without 2.0, which means leadership by the city and some investment, 3.0 has a hard time thriving. So like, you know, public Wi-Fi is probably something that should be done by the city government, not by... Um, citizen hackers. I mean, cities should pay for some infrastructure. Open data in cities is a 2.0 thing. We need to open up our data. We need to generate data in a way that's usable by third parties to build apps and hack on top of it. So it's 2.0 interacts with 3.0, in my opinion. 2.0 lays the groundwork so that 3.0 can Mm -hmm. work. And you need the city leadership to be bought into the idea of engaging citizens. So that does require some leadership. It's not not necessarily you can just have chaotic anarchy in a city and say citizens just rule everything because that won't work Mm -hmm. either. So it's a combination, I think, that works best. So what are some of the like specific things that are happening in those cities or the innovation that has happened in those cities that you mentioned um, that are causing you to, to, to put them on that list? Well, I, I brought Singapore up. So let's give a few examples of Singapore. So Singapore uh, implemented a long time ago electronic road pricing. That is that they vary pricing on roadways based on traffic congestion. So they're trying to do carrot and stick to reduce traffic. They also, uh, on, in this same space, they've been very innovative. So, uh, or uh, autocratic as well. They have last I checked, they had something like a seventy thousand dollar license to be able to operate your own private vehicle. And what yeah, they're I've doing, heard that before. they're trying to price out the use of private vehicles. Um, they have great world class public transportation. So it's a combination of making it costly and a pain in the ass to drive with providing world class infrastructure so you have a viable alternative. And that's where a lot of governments flaw and not doing both. Sometimes they say we got to get rid of traffic, but then they don't have a good option for people and that doesn't work either. Um, 
in, in Singapore, another thing I've been really impressed, there's a lot of things I'm impressed by Singapore. I've been there like 15 times um, for, for work and for research and other stuff. But uh, one of the other things they did that was really impressive was around water. Singapore has a very serious potable water problem. They don't have enough drinking water. And on until about 15, 20 years ago, I think 80, 70 to 80% of all their water was imported from Malaysia. And their government said, well, this is not a good idea because someday, what if we have a war with Malaysia or, or they mm-hmm. run out of water, they have water problems, they're going to cut off supply to us and we're screwed, we all die. So they're very strategic. They think 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And then they basically cultivated uh, tech ecosystem around their world-class universities. They have two of the best universities in the world. I mean, their campuses are amazing, top researchers in every field. Because I used to be in academics, I had a, a good opportunity to spend some time in both of those universities, and the, the big ones, NTU and NUS, and they're just amazing. They're just like MIT. Well, NTU is just like MIT. Um, amazing places. So they started by getting research, giving research, uh, starting uh, research institutes for water, and now they're world class. They have, I think, I think it might be the country with the uh, most revenues from technology companies in the water space in the world. It's it's uh, certainly per capita. They're number one in the world for sure because it's a small country. Uh, so those are examples of things they've done. Uh, Medellin is famous for being very ground up. So um, they obviously were recovering from narco trafficking and uh, lots of crime. And they decided I love what they did because they decided to innovate from the bottom up, which is very 3.0 thinking. So they went to the poorest neighborhoods in the city and asked people, what are your biggest concerns for life in Medellin? What things could we do to improve life? So they didn't like knock on doors. They had these little um, town hall forums where they brought in 50 people and they listened and they co-created ideas together and then they launched them. And now Medellin is a world-class example of a smart city 3.0. They've done things like um, they're famous for their, um, their uh, cable car cable cars. going up the mm-hmm. mountain. They also have uh, escalators going up the mountain. And, and that might sound like a trivial thing, but it is so not. I mean, mobility is such an essential part of life. And people before then, because it's the poor people lived in those neighborhoods in the hillside, they had to go through bad neighborhoods on the way, take multiple buses to get to work, leave their kids uh, on their own at five in the morning to get to work somewhere else in the city. And it was, you know, a very unhealthy um, and bad lifestyle for them. And they innovated in a way. One of the things I love about what they did, it's very common in Latin American cities. To basically, when you want to offer services to poor people in suburban areas, like a common example, cities have bad polluting buses in their core. And they say, all right, mm-hmm. pollution's terrible. We got to get rid of these buses. Ah, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to add new bus service for the poor people. So we're going to give these shitty buses to the poor people so they can inhale the crappy fumes, but at least it's better than what they have now. And then we're going to have cleaner air in our city and put in electric buses in the center. But so what I love about what Medellin did was uh, they they innovated with world class technology with great solutions for the lower uh, income people, and now like they have the best library in all of Colombia at the top of the that cable car in one of the poorest neighborhoods was one of the poorest neighborhoods in the 
country. And now rich people from around Colombia and around the world actually take this cable car to go to this poor neighborhood, to go to this amazing library. So it's rethinking from the bottom up, grassroots. It's really cool. Yeah, Medellin is a city that's going to be very familiar to a lot of listeners here. Maybe a lot of listeners have spent time there because Medellin has become a hub for uh, location-independent entrepreneurs. Lots of uh, digital nomads go there quite often and use it as um, an America's uh, home base. So uh, that's really cool to hear. Where does this all go? Like in 10, 20 years, where do you think all the things that you're doing now and all the other people in your industry and all the work that that you guys are doing collectively, where do you hope that this goes? What does the world look like in 10, 20 years in terms of mobility? I think um, just like my discussion around smart cities, I think you're going to see different approaches to mobility around the world. So in North America, it seems there's a lot of intrigue, investment, and momentum for personal autonomous vehicles. Uh, They will potentially also be part of shared fleets where um, they're autonomous, but um, you get in one where there's other people in it. So sometimes they'll be personally owned. Sometimes they'll be part of fleets of some kind. Um, Everything will certainly be electrified by then. The electric, uh, the electrification of transit and mobility is definitely here. It's accelerating very fast, and I think in in the industrialized world and hopefully in the develop, developing world too, we'll see. We won't see combustion engines anywhere anymore. Um, so that's that's certainly part of it. But in in more dense cities like Europe, we're seeing kind of the opposite. What I mean by kind of the opposite is there is massive resistance to the car here. It's getting worse, not better, if you're a car lover, in the sense of a lot of the cities in Europe are starting to increasingly make driving cars in the city not just more expensive, but even impossible, illegal or whatever. Um, I think we're going to see more of that. I think there's not an appetite for autonomous vehicle, private vehicles in Europe at all. There is an appetite for autonomous shuttles. Uh, and we're seeing some trials with that here. So I think in Europe, you're going to see, you know, seamless interconnected mobility uh, with uh, better better interconnections between public tra- uh, transit and micromobility like scooters and bikes and that kind of thing. All of that will be electrified. You know, still today, you see a lot of bike sharing services that are pedal powered. I don't think we'll probably see much of that in the future. And the shared fleets will all be electric as well. I think you'll see more... Um, interoperability and more interconnections between all these things. So I'll give an example. Like in Barcelona, we have Plaza Catalunya, which is the center of the city, and it's a major hub of transport. So what we'll see in the future in a place like Plaza Catalunya is where all these uh, different train lines come into, the suburban trains, the metro lines, and everything else. When you get out, you're going to have seamless access to a range of other electric vehicles to get to your end destination. So that could be a car share, it could be a bike share, it could be a scooter share. They, they may or may not be part of like an underground or above ground parking facility that is connected to the, uh, connected to the, uh, the main transit hub. I think you're going to see, especially in Europe, you're going to see dedicated space for pedestrians dedicated space potentially for non-motorized micromobility. I say potentially because I'm not totally sure in 10 or 20 years there will be much non-motorized micromobility. Right now there still is. 
you know, I would, a bike is a non-motorized micromobility service. A skateboard is. We may still have that. Certainly, some people still own them. I'm, I'm a diehard mountain biker, and everyone asks me when am I going electric. I'm, I'm never going electric, not unless my my body won't let me ride up the mountain without one. I, I, I'm, I'm hardcore. I'm sort of core on that one. So I will always have a mountain bike that I I hope that doesn't have electric boost. So you still may need that space. You will for the next 10 years while we transition, you're going to need dedicated space for non-motorized micromobility because right now we have too much shared use of public space between People walking, people cycling, and people on electric scooters, and they all go at different speeds and they move in different ways. And I think each of them are going to need their own space. And that will come at the expense of cars, which will Mm -hmm. be gradually eradicated from urban centers. That's my opinion. Asia and other parts of the world will see an evolution different. Asia is really interested in autonomous vehicles as well, including the shuttles. They're doing more around shuttles than in the U.S. than the U.S. is. Obviously, a you have high density cities there too, and Asian cities are actually more progressive than North American ones are regarding um, shifting away from private car dependence. So you'll probably see a lot of autonomous shuttles in Asia, and also similar stuff that we're seeing in Europe. Yeah, it's been really interesting and funny watching cities react to like all the scooters and there's just you know scooters are like the worst thing ever and like you know there's all this stuff and and i think you're right i think that just um i mean i i believe barcelona is one of the cities where there's certain sections that you cannot drive a car like they're like shut down right um and i think that's amazing that it you know you hear all these horror stories about just how dirty and polluted the air is in, in these big cities and and that's you know it, it totally makes sense that we're going to move away from those. Well, um, Boyd, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Before we wrap up, um, please tell everybody where they can find your book and um, where can they find out more about IOMob and, and follow you? Um, do you guys have any social media or anything like that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're uh, On Twitter, we're IOMob underscore net. Uh, our website's IOMob.net. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter and various other places. Um, the book uh, that we're referring to is called the emergence of the urban entrepreneur. It's available on Amazon. Uh, I have, that was my second of three books. My third book was called post-capitalist entrepreneurship, which I think some of your audience would also engage with, which was looking at how we're finding new ways of organizing economic activity that are a little less, um, aligned with our thinking of how capitalist enterprises get started. Uh, it has a lot about blockchain and um, um, co- platform cooperatives and other forms of organizing, you know, open source movements um, that actually create products and services or enable the sharing economy to thrive without depending on an intermediary. So I look at a lot of those things. So all those books are on Amazon. Uh, one last thing I wouldn't mind mentioning to your audience is mm-hmm. um, a new initiative we're working on at IMOB that may end up coming to a city near you soon, which is. Uh, we, I have a model as an entrepreneur, uh, that I created in the context of this crisis, which is innovate, don't hibernate. So if you listen to that for, for your entrepreneurs in the audience who have startups, you know, there, a lot of the advice we're getting as entrepreneurs from the global, uh, startup community, from big name investors like Sequoia Capital is, you know, the best thing they're doing in a crisis is hibernate. 
get rid of any staff you really don't need, you know, reduce your costs however you can, um, wait it out, just survive because that's what you got to do. And, you know, there is truth to that. I'm not trying to be overly critical that it's not like it's dumb advice, but it's not innovative advice. It's like, it's the, it's the easy way out in a way. And so a couple of weeks ago, I saw a call from the European union uh, for startups who have solutions to the virus. And, you know, you're sitting there thinking as are your listeners like, so what Boyd, you're an idiot. What does, what does mobility have to do with solving the pandemic? Well, of course it has a lot to do with it because if you're moving around in massive people, you're contagious, you're, exposing yourself and others to contagion and it's creating a lot of problems for people who do have to move around still even in quarantines like we're in there are people who have to move like for if they're doing essential services they have to go somewhere so i started thinking about it and pitched it to my co-founders long story we only had a few days if we wanted to turn this around we ended up doing it which was a 30-page proposal with projections around how imob could integrate social distance into our algorithms so that Users of apps connected to our platform could choose, like, we already have filters for the greenest uh, route, the cheapest, the fastest. All right, let's add a social distance filter. You can choose for social distance. Then you will only see journey options that help you adhere to social distance, whether it's low-occupied public transit, whether it's uh, taxis or ride-hailing where you can book and pay inside the app of our client so you don't have to exchange with the driver and pay and worry about that or a bus driver or whatever. Um, so there's various things, features that we're going to build. And anyway, we, we put that proposal together in 48 hours. It's under review for a 2 million euro grant from the European Union. And uh, my, my moral of this story, besides, you know, hopefully it comes to a city near you soon, this, this capability is, I think to your listeners who are wondering, you know, what should I do while we're stuck and quarantined and we're all forced into remote, whether we want it to be or not, you know, we were all in quarantine when this opportunity came up. And I said, I don't want to sit around and wait and, and remove our staff. We, our staff are great. I don't want to lose any of them. They're hard to find. And uh, so I said, well, we need to keep finding a way to innovate and find ways to bring in money and grow the company despite the crisis we're in. So I guess my my uh, le- my moral of the story here is see if in your own organizations you have a way to innovate a solution that can allow your technology to be of service to humanity right now and at the same time allow you to to keep your employees um employed and paid and also come out of the crisis in a better position than you were before you went into it and that's what we're trying to do yeah absolutely i i couldn't support a statement more one of the things that i've seen here i mean you know having spent some time in cincinnati i'm guessing having gone to miami universities there's lots of you know breweries and distilleries all this kind of stuff around here and while nobody's going and drinking beer at those breweries which to me as a big beer lover is, is a very sad thing a lot of them that have distilling um capabilities are now creating um manufacturing uh, hand sanitizer mm-hmm. and actually selling it to hospitals and kind of um, to other industries for which that's a necessity. And I, and I think that's an amazing way, like you said, to innovate instead of just sit and say like, oh, nobody's going to come drink our beer and we're going to be sad or drink our alcohol or whatever. They're actually trying to do something and innovating and, and helping out. So I, um, I totally agree. And uh, again, thank you so much for coming by uh, and talking to what I think is a really exciting subject. Um, and I'm going to have links to everything that you mentioned, um, 
on the, on the uh, webpage for this podcast. So if anybody wants to go and check that out, I'll have it there. Uh, Boyd, again, thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good luck to everyone. Stay safe.